Following the Great Recession in 2008, Ben Witherington, a famous New Testament scholar, published a little book about Jesus and money, a guide for times of financial crisis. You'll remember that was a time when the housing market collapsed, people were losing their jobs, and everything he wrote became increasingly relevant. Fast forward to today, are we in a recession? Are we not? Gas prices and inflation have reached record highs. No one knows what the future holds. And so I think it's as good a time as any for Christians to look inward and upward on our relationship with money. Because whether you have a lot or a little, Jesus has a lot to say about how closely we cling to our income, our possessions, and the things of this world that moth and rust destroy. You're listening out of the Great Stories Podcast. I'm Charles Morris. And before we get started with Dr. Ben Witherington, Bible scholar, New Testament prof at Asbury Theological Seminary, you should know that we recorded this conversation in 2012. So some of the current events mentioned in the following minutes will not seem quite so current to you today. In fact, it might feel like an audio time capsule at a moment or two. But the important thing here is that the truths Ben shares from his findings in scripture are timeless. Whether it's the Great Recession or whatever we're about to face in 2022, I'm confident this will not only help you have a more Christ-like relationship with your money, it'll give you hope in times of famine and plenty, knowing that our greatest treasure is not found in things of this world, but in Jesus Christ. So let's get started. Dr. Ben Witherington with us here on Haven Today, and we're talking about Jesus and money. Ben, welcome for the very first time, I think, to uh, Haven Today. Good to be with you. Let's talk about the economy. I was intrigued by finding this book that you had written on Jesus and money, but the subtitle, A Guide for Times of Financial Crisis. You wrote this recently, but you did it after... After the crash the in crash 2008. 2008. Yeah, I did. yeah, that's right. That's right. Overall, how have you seen the recession in your life, the lives of those around you, and then as someone who's not just a scholar, but also a, a, a preacher of God's Word? It's certainly, of course, affected the American economy in a big way. And part of the problem is I think most Americans don't understand that we're part of a global economy. It's, it's not possible anymore to be isolationists and just think, well, it's just all about us working harder and we'll take care of it internally. It doesn't really work that way anymore. Forty percent of our debt is owned by China. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. If they called in their markers today, they could have Texas, California, New York, and Illinois right. own them all. Right. So we live with a global economy. The markets come and go based on all kinds of fluctuations. The most obvious thing, of course, is oil. Since we are still carbon-driven people in terms of our vehicles and all of that sort of thing, jet fuel, you name it, The truth of the matter is that we are dependent on external sources of energy to an enormous extent. And, I mean, that's the obvious sort of tipping point that people can see that affects the economy. In regard to how it's affected us, you know, it certainly affected my school. And you're at Asbury Seminary? I'm at Asbury Theological Seminary, just south of Lexington, Kentucky. I mean, we lost staff, we lost colleagues. Now, we've rebounded since then. We're we're back up to snuff again through some 
careful diligence and the hard work of our advancement people, among others. But, yeah, I mean, it was personal. It affected a lot of people here in Lexington. I mean, Kentucky is either the second or the third poorest state in the mm-hmm. Union in a given year. Mm-hmm. With Mississippi, Alabama, or West Virginia, those would be the bottom four right mm-hmm. there in any given year. And we had already lost most of our textile jobs. And so the little industries in the small towns in Kentucky are gone, pretty much. Mm-hmm. You know, we have only two major cities, Lexington, Louisville. Louisville's over a million. Lexington's about 350,000. Textile jobs, blue-collar jobs have disappeared, dried up everywhere. And so when the economic downturn hit Kentucky, it affected educational institutions in a huge way mm-hmm. in this state because the blue-collar jobs are, of course, the first ones that dry up and disappear. All kinds of schools felt the pinch. Students uh, you know, had to just borrow more money. So you have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and Sally Mae and all of those things over-loaning money and contributing mm-hmm. to the deficit in the economy. Readily apparent, even to an educator, that we were pretty close to the tipping point of the amount of debt we could sustain. And where I live, of course, the most visible effect of a recession is the housing market in California. Right. But I go to Florida, and I see it in spades in Florida as well. You see it in the churches, too, don't you? Oh, yeah. You, you do. Now, you have to understand the cost of living in Kentucky, because it is a poor state, is a fourth of what it would be in California. My mm-hmm. house mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. Uh, would cost four to five to six times what it does right. here in California. So I suppose in some ways being a poor state has saved some of the housing market in, in poor states because, frankly, we weren't building at 900 miles an hour anyway because right. right. people right. don't have the income. And, and so it was, it was less of an effect to direct to the housing industry. But there was definitely effect. I mean, there were a lot of half-built houses here in Lexington and unfinished things and houses that wouldn't sell. Do you think this surprised some of us that the Lord let this happen to what many of us, even in the Christian community in America, see as the wealthiest country in the world that God has blessed, and why now? Why are you letting this happen to us, Lord? I think the Old Testament does say that judgment begins with the household of God. Mm. And I think for a very long time, most Christians in America have lived irresponsibly, very Mm. irresponsibly. They have bought into the American dream of a lifestyle of conspicuous consumption. And there are times when God has to prune his people Mm. and bring them back down to reality. And to whom more is given, more is required. America consumes 66% of all the world's resources. Mm. We are less than 10% of the world's population. There has to be accountability Mm. for that. And I think that uh, we should see times of recession and, and what we've been going through is a reminder from God that we have not been good stewards of our resources. We have not, as Christians, mainly used it to help other people, to lift people out of poverty, to do mission work of various kinds. We've mainly spent it on ourselves, mm. overspent it on ourselves, and allowed ourselves to become a debtor nation. Now, I mean, it's in my lifetime and your lifetime, Charles, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that we've become a debtor nation. Yes. And the beginning of that, unfortunately, was with 
the beginning of the credit cards in the 1950s. Yeah, our parents didn't know that, Ben. Did no, they? they didn't have credit cards. That's right. You you spent it if you had it. My grandfather hid it under the mattress or in the hope chest. That's right. right. That's because, right. Because when the Depression hit in the 1929 and then in the early 30s, banks were not trustworthy. Mm-hmm. So you because don't banks put, had closed and lost people's You, you money. don't put money in banks, and you certainly don't invest in something called Wall Street. That's so right. So this is a late Western, late 20th century, post-World War II phenomenon. And the economy since World War II has dramatically changed, mm-hmm. dramatically mm-hmm. changed. And we have allowed ourselves to believe in buy now, pay later. Ben, what is... The message for the Lord. Let, let's say we're coming out, now, although George Saros said recently the Depression is still coming. But, of course, he doesn't have a crystal ball. He doesn't no. know. No one knows. God knows. What should we be learning now, If whether we go into another double dip or whether we're actually coming out of it? What's a Christian to do now? Well, first of all, I would want to say we are not bulletproof even if you're a sincere, devout Christian person. God didn't promise us a rose garden. There are a lot of myths that come out of the mouths of ministers about a health and wealth gospel, (laughs) and they are We're going to dig into that a little bit more, too, Ben. Absolutely. They are not a version of the gospel. They are a perversion of the gospel, Mm. and we need to have reality check. So God has given us a reality check. We have an opportunity to learn how to be good stewards of God's resources because they are God's resources. They are not our resources. The Bible is perfectly clear. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness Mm. thereof. Yes. We are not owners. We didn't bring it into this world with us, nor even if we're buried with our pink Cadillac, can we take it with us? I mean, (laughs) I know Egyptian pharaohs thought they could take it with them. They were buried with it. That is so not working. We have very strange notions about ownership in America. Mm. And my point would be, if you want to think theologically about this, we don't own anything. The Bible says Mm. God is the owner. We are users of God's property, period. Now, that cuts against all kinds of theories of public property and communism. It also cuts against all kinds of theories of private property and capitalism. Hmm. Godless capitalism is not what the Bible talks about any more than it talks about godless communism. When it talks about money and resources, it talks about being responsible stewards of God's property. And Hmm. if you can't get anything else out of what I say, that should change your whole worldview. It should drive our lives. It it should change the way you live your life. Mm. We live in a Jesus-haunted culture that's biblically illiterate. So we don't think biblically before we make any kind of significant purchase. We don't ask, will this purchase glorify God and edify other human beings? Mm -hmm. We don't ask that question. It's do I want this? We simply say, do I want this? Right. Is this the desire of my heart? We impulse buy, we are stupid. We go to grocery stores right before supper time. We go shopping as therapy for being depressed. 
This is not Christian behavior at all. It's not Christian behavior. And we should not be praying, God bless my standard of living. We should be praying, Lord, help me de-enculturate myself from a culture of conspicuous consumption so I can live a life that is free of debt, a simpler life, a more helpful life, so that my resources are freed up to deal with my necessities and other people's needs and not with our luxuries. You are a world-famous New Testament scholar, but you do talk about how this actually begins all the way back in Genesis. Well, sure it does. Of course it does. Life is a gift from God. And Adam and Eve had jobs, according to Genesis. Mm -hmm. God, we, we never think of that, but God you're right. told them that they were to fill the earth and subdue it. Yes. They were to be stewards of God's creation from day one. So this goes all the way back to the creation order. It's not just in the New Testament. It's all over the Old Testament. It's all over the Psalms. The Psalms are where we find the line, the earth is the Lord's and yes. the fullness thereof. The basic theology of the Bible is that this is my father's world. Mm. It's not mm. my world. It's not America's world. It's my father's world. And the more we think biblically about these things, the more we realize we have been sold literally a bill of goods by our culture and the debts, the bills are coming due. Mm. And so it's time for us to really do serious reflection about what we're going to do with the resources we have and what mm. good stewardship that will glorify God and edify other people and help us looks like. What does that look like? And I have to be honest with you, the, the problem with a lot of even Christian financial counselors who shall go nameless on this program <laughs> is they know enough about the Bible to make them dangerous. They do not understand the Bible, whether it's Proverbs or some other part of the Bible, in its original historical context. They don't understand how that kind of literature was intended to work and what kind of advice it was intending to give. And they absolutely don't understand that the economies of the biblical world were radically different from our mm, modern, mm, late Western, mm. free market, capitalistic economy. We're talking apples and oranges difference. Let's take one example. Okay. Almost all of those economies, so far as we can tell, were not money economies at all. They were barter economies. That an, is. An agrarian-based. It's an agrarian-based economy, and it's economy based on exchange, and it's not a democratic society. It was absolutely who you knew. The way you got ahead in life is not by going to college. There were no colleges to speak of. There was no Antioch. vote to speak there of was by no the vote. general populace. There was no vote, not in the Roman Empire. There was definitely no voting, no democracy of any kind, no free market capitalism. So you needed to go to a patron to get ahead and he'll help you buy land or get a job or, or do certain tasks to make a living. I mean, you see this in the parables of Jesus. You've got these people sitting around the town square waiting for a patron to come and get them so that they can go work in the vineyard or here. Mm -hmm. They're not inherently lazy. Mm -hmm. They just don't have any control over their economic reality. 98% of all the resources in the biblical world were in the hands of 2% of the people. Right. America's getting there pretty quick. The rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. But in that economy, in that kind of barter economy, you didn't do transactions on the basis of money. You know, okay, I've got some figs here. 
that I'd like to exchange for an awl so that I could plane some wood and build a shed in my backyard. Mm -hmm. So you have a means of exchange with goods and services, or I'll work if you will let me have this hammer, right? That kind of thing. Money did not function in mm. those economies mm. like it does in our economies. Basically, money was only for taxes, tolls, and tribute money. Mm. You only needed money when you went to the temple. They wanted cold, hard money. That's what they wanted, and that was the means of exchange in certain limited spheres. Imagine in America today, if you had tax collectors running around collecting taxes for China, hmm. since we owe 40% of our debt to China. I mean, how receptive would we be? Wouldn't go down I mean, well. I think the Tea Party would have complete apoplexy. Yes. You know, if we had foreign yeah. tax collectors collecting for the, the government of China here right. in America. Well, that's exactly what was happening in Galilee and Judea. That's exactly what was happening. They had oppressive overlords mm -hmm. collecting taxes for yours truly, the emperor. Mm -hmm. You know, and so when you get to the famous story, for example, of Jesus holding and the silver denarius, first of all, notice he didn't have any coins on him. Somebody what, had to give him a coin. That would have been considered not unclean, but it would have been considered well, the zealots, unholy, I the guess. The zealots didn't want anything to do with foreign money that had pictures of graven images on them. Jesus deconstructs just about everybody's imagination in that famous story. When he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's, this is a tremendously ironic saying because mm -hmm. Jesus knows the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Strictly speaking, everything belongs to God. Nothing really belongs to Caesar. Mm -hmm. But what he's saying is give Caesar back his worthless piece of metal, mm -hmm. but serve God. Mm. Put God first in your life. He's not setting up a separation of church and state there. He's not saying these are your secular duties and these are your sacred. Absolutely not. What he's doing is he's deconstructing the zealot view of money and the temple priest's view of money and even ordinary people's views of money. He's saying money is worth far less than you think it is. Mm -hmm. And then he's going to say, you cannot serve two masters. If you just joined us here on Haven today, you're listening to Dr. Ben Witherington. He's uh, on the faculty at Asbury Seminary in uh, Kentucky. He is a world-famous New Testament scholar, and he's written a great book called Jesus and Money, A Guide for Times of Financial Crisis. Ben, if Jesus were sitting with us together in your living room today, if he were still on earth, and he were listening to our conversation, and you, in light of the New Testament, what do you think Jesus would say to us about living in this day, maybe hopefully post-recession, but how we handle our Father's resources? What would he be talking to us about today? Well, if he was right here in this house, I'm sure the first thing he would say to me is, you realize, Ben, by world standards, you're rich. Mm. I think mm. what most Americans don't understand, even those who are poor as church mouse, as my grandmother used to say, is by world standards, even almost the poorest of the poor in our culture are wealthy by comparison yes. to the rest of the world. Now, mm. I'm not talking about Europe. I'm talking about the two-thirds world. I'm right. talking about Africa. I'm talking about India. I'm talking about Malaysia. I'm talking about South America. I'm talking about most of the world. 
most of the world is not America and Europe. Even though we have been the dominant economies for, lo, these many years since the rise of the Industrial Revolution, the vast majority of human beings don't live in these places, weren't raised in these places. And, uh, yeah, I mean, if you are born in Darfur, in a small rural village, born in poverty, that abject poverty where you are roaming around day to day, just to find a place to lie down, hmm. just to find a meal, hoping maybe to find a little bit of work to do so you can feed your children. I mean, even in our worst case of homelessness and people living on the streets of America, they at least have clothes on their back. Hmm. There is at least a Salvation Army hmm. they can go see. Hmm. We have no idea what abject poverty looks like in America. And so the first thing... Jesus, I think, would say to me is, Ben, by world standards, you're rich. Yes. And you have far more responsibility for what you do with your money than what that man in Darfur does mm -hmm. because he has almost nothing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and then I think he would talk to me about where your treasure is. Mm. There also lies your heart. He would ask me, what are the things that really motivate my behavior, my purchasing, what I do with my resources. And he would hold me accountable for what I have done, what I am doing, and what I will do going forward. Now, we can't change the past, but I think God has given us a window of opportunity to repent and do better. Repent of our lifestyles of conspicuous consumption and do better going forward. And I know that Jesus would say, I told you to make disciples of all nations. Mm -hmm. From now on, in a global economy, you need to be a world Christian. It's not good enough to just be an American Christian. You need to be a world Christian. You mm -hmm. need to think globally, though you act locally. You need to think about all of humanity and how God loves all of them and how Jesus died for all all of them, that's what needs to get you up in the morning and get you going. That's how you ought to think about the world instead of being self-centered and selfish and narcissistic. And, you know, I mean, I would simply have to say, forgive me, Lord. <laughs> well, you know? me too. Yeah. Because you All see, of us. we are inundated by advertising and our whole culture, which tells us to put ourselves first that tells us that, that to take care of yourself first. It, it tells us over and over again, it's okay to buy completely useless stuff that you don't even need. Mm -hmm. It helps the economy. Mm -hmm. You have politicians and presidents saying, help the economy, go buy crap, <laughs> right? And help the economy. This is such bad advice, and Christians mm. should never listen to it. Mm. Never listen to it. Mm. We should be setting an example of living frugal, simple Christian lives that convict and convince and convert people to the Christian faith simply by the way we live. Mm. If we look like anybody else that is rich and famous and successful in our culture, how will anybody be able to tell what a difference Jesus made in that person's life? if we look like any other successful person. They it's won't. It's not exactly the sweet perfume of the gospel, is it? Not exactly. 
one of the things you talk about in your book are preachers, whether on TV or radio, and, and I've been to Africa, I've been to Latin America, and sadly, the Christianity that's being exported from North America is a gospel of plenty. You can have it too. I teach in Moscow at, at Moscow Evangelical Seminary from time to time. The founding dean of that seminary was one of my students. And one Sunday he took me to what used to be the old communist Olympic auditorium in downtown Moscow to hear a preacher. This preacher was an import. His name shall be nameless. And he got up and preached to a largely Pentecostal gathering and Baptist gathering of Russian Christians that God wants you rich. Wow. You know, I, I was just thinking practically then, how exactly in Russia, where there is really no democracy and there is certainly no free market capitalism and there are no opportunities to become rich for 99.9% mm -hmm. of the whole population, how exactly is that message helping them? Are they to expect that God's going to drop treasure chests from the sky into their backyard? <laughs> how, how is this good news to them? Mm. How is this not just an exercise in futility rather than fertility? I came out of that just like with smoke coming out of my ears. Mm. This was not good news for these struggling. Mainly over there, I train Russian Baptist pastors who are having to do a second job in order to be pastors because nobody can pay them. <laughs> they have no money. They had no money to go to seminary. They have no money that they make doing the gospel. They have sacrificed everything to serve the Lord. And the last message they need to hear is, you know, if you'd just been a little better Christian or had a little more faith, you could be wealthy. It's just because your prayer life is not right. It's just because you don't have enough quotient of faith. This is baloney. This is totally whacked out theology. All right, we're going to let a little more smoke come out of your ears now. I have heard people say, preachers, as you have, of course, that this is biblical. Just go to the Proverbs. Just go to other places in Scripture. You're a biblical theologian. What do you have to say about what the Bible says? I say says? a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. Mm. And taking the Proverbs out of the context of what kind of literature it actually is, is frankly sinful. It's not just bad preaching, it's sinful. Any preacher of God's word should study to find himself approved. If he doesn't understand the context, the historical, the literary, the economic context out of which this comes, he should just shut up. He shouldn't mm -hmm. talk about these things because mm -hmm. he doesn't know how they function. Let's take Proverbs, for example. Okay. Proverbs are wisdom literature. They are not prophecies. They are not promises from God. They are wisdom literature. They are the received, distilled wisdom of an agrarian culture that God gave Solomon and his successors to help God's people live healthy, wealthy, and wise lives. That's the point. There are not invariable rules of how things work. And some of the advice about money and wealth simply does not translate to a late Western free market economic situation. It doesn't work that way. In any case, the wisdom that we're dealing with 
that Solomon gives is actually mainly wisdom for his kind of people. That is, it's wisdom for educated people. It's wisdom for the wealthy people who lived around Jerusalem who were literate. Only 10% of the whole culture was literate, mm. who could read and write. And frankly, most people were too busy trying to survive to have time to learn little proverbs and memorize little proverbs and then try to implement them in their lives. They were too busy trying to survive. They were praying, give us today the bread for tomorrow. Right. A familiar prayer from Jesus, right? The proverbs in the first place were intended for the upper echelon of society who were literate, who had time to reflect and think about how to change their economic situation, because most people couldn't change their economic situation. Some people, I've had people email me when we talked about the Proverbs before, would say, but these are promises of God. Are you denying the promises of God? I'm certainly not denying the promises of God, but guess what? Some of God's promises are conditional. Hmm. For example, the Old Testament, we hear this, if God's people who are called by his name will repent and turn to him, then X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. Well, mm -hmm. all bets are off if we don't repent and turn to God. It is so not going to come true. Right. Is that not a promise of God? Yes. There are a lot of God's promises that are unfulfilled, and it's our fault. It's our mm -hmm. fault mm -hmm. because God gives promises and prophecies and proverbs in the context of relationship. And how the relationship is going affects whether this is happening for us now or not. And here's the other thing. What the New Testament says is money and wealth is a temptation. And it's a temptation that can ruin your spiritual life and has ruined many Christian lives. Ruined Christian lives. And you find this in the New Testament. What, what about there is teaching that some people will go to find a verse in the New Testament to say God wants you to just desire something and you can have it. He wants you to be wealthy. But yet Jesus also said, blessed are the poor. Right, right. Well, first of all, uh, one of the things you hear in Faith Promise and Name It and Claim It schools is that ask whatever you will in Jesus' name, mm -hmm. and if you have enough faith, it'll be done for you. You deserve it. Let me give you this little clue. If you're going to sign a prayer in Jesus' name, you need to make sure that what's in the prayer is something Jesus would have prayed. Mm -hmm. Jesus is not going to make you wealthy if he knows perfectly well it will destroy your soul. Wow. Jesus is not going to make you wealthy just because you want to live a lifestyle of more luxury and he knows that you're going to spend it on yourself because you're a narcissist, you're a self-centered person. Jesus has no interest whatsoever in giving you things that will drag your Christian life into the dregs and the gutter. He has no interest in doing that at all. Mm. The kind of person that God might bless with wealth is a person who is inherently self-sacrificial, not self-centered. And the first thing question they would ask is, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? Mm. How can I be a blessing to others with this? Not how can I do a better job of spending this on my own family and myself, mm. right? Mm. That's the kind of person that God is more likely to give wealth to. And he's not going to do it just because you pray a nice, correct prayer and you are earnest and fervent and believe. Mm -hmm. 
you don't have the power to turn God into a cosmic bellhop who jumps and does whatever you ask because you've prayed a correct prayer. And frankly, you don't have enough faith to twist God's arm until he says, uncle, nobody has that much faith. Mm -hmm. So it's just not true that there is such a thing as a name it and claim it gospel at all, because of course, God will do what is best for all his people, not just for us. And sometimes the righteous person is the person in the poverty. Absolutely. I mean, look at church history. I mean, you have to have complete church history amnesia to think that God ever wants everybody wealthy. Some of the greatest saints in all of Christian history have A, died young, B, had bad health, or have been in abject poverty. There's no question about that. If you're a student of the 3rd and 4th and 5th centuries, most of those people died from martyrdom or poverty, and they were devout Christians. Was, was there something wrong with their faith? No. The goal was not for them to become economic superstars living the life of the rich and the famous. This was never God's goal for them. It's just the American dream, and it's a perversion of the gospel. This is Haven Today, and we are visiting in Kentucky with Dr. Ben Witherington. He's a New Testament scholar. A great book out called Jesus and Money, A Guide for Times of Financial Crisis. We had somebody on our program once, everyone would know, written lots of books, into financial planning, Christian, who actually told me he believes if you follow certain principles, mm -hmm. biblical principles, mm -hmm then you are guaranteed financial success. Now, this man would deny he is part of the name it and claim it, Lord, make me rich, or whatever. He's just yeah. wanting to have all our ducks in order. Is it true what is taught by some people that Jesus had more to say about money than any other thing? Well, it was certainly one of his favorite topics. I will say this. He says more about money and wealth than he does about heaven. That's for sure. Mm. And the reason is he knew what a temptation those things were for all of us. And so what you see in what Jesus says about money and wealth is a critique of the dangers of those things. Do not store up treasures where moth and rust can consume, says Jesus. Mm. Hello. Okay. Mm. So much mm. for pension plans. Mm. By the way, America, the concept of retirement is a late Western economic idea. It's not in the Bible. Anywhere. Anywhere. <laughs> now that we have that settled, Ben, how do you think then a Christian, even in an affluent society yeah. like Canada, like the United States, yeah. how should we live? First of all, let me say, in regard to financial plan planners, um, I'm all for financial planning. I do think that those who failed plan, plan to fail. I think mm -hmm, that's true. Mm -hmm, there's, mm -hmm. it, that may be a cliche, but there's some truth in that. So I do think that Christians should sit down and start to think through what are necessities in my life and what are luxuries in my life. And to think about budgeting. I think that's a good thing. Yes. What, what, do I, what are the things I absolutely need to spend money on? Here are my debts. Here's my light bill. Here's this. There's that. Over here and over there are the luxuries. Now, what John Wesley said with his good Puritan background was that 
another person's necessities and your ability to do good for another person that has a necessity comes before your spending money on your luxuries. Mm. If that's not convicting, I don't know what is for an American Christian. Mm. That's exactly right. I mean, imagine the body of Christ in the world, or even just in America, where there were no poor Christians, where there were no homeless Christians, where we took care of our own. Paul says, do good to all, but especially to the body of Christ, especially to the household of faith. Imagine if the household of faith was in order and the world could see that we take care of our own. Now, this is what the early church did. What a witness. Uh, well, it, It's it what the happened. church was doing in early America, it, it too. It happened. The best example would be during the time of the horrible par- persecutions of Decian and Diocletian before Constantine became emperor in the fourth century, okay? Mm-hmm. The reason for the persecutions was Christians were doing such a good job of getting people out of poverty and taking care of the indigent, looking after widows and orphans and children, that the pagan temples were closing. People were going to the church because the church took care of people. That's why they went to the church. And so Decian and Diocletian said, we got to shut down this Christian church thing. Hmm. We got to shut it down. We got to persecute. We got to put them out of business so we can ramp back up the pagan temples and the resources that come into the pagan temples. Nobody's putting money into the pagan treasuries. It was a drain on the economy. It was a terrible drain on. I mean, you think about that now. Imagine what a witness it would be in America if we all took care of our own, from the least, the last, and the lost, to the first, the most, and the found. Imagine, imagine if we did that. Mm. Now there would be a witness because. I mean, the one thing that's the ultimate buzzkill for most non-Christians is hypocrisy. Mm. Christians say X, they talk about love, they talk about self-sacrifice. Look how they're living. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It looks like self-indulgent narcissism to me. Well, it's, that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. So, you know, I think going forward, we have to find a way to live more self-sacrificially and to take care of our own. And to do, as Acts 2 and 4 said, they worked in such a way that they made sure that no one was in need. Mm. Now, that's not equal distribution of goods to everybody. It's not communism. It's communalism. That is caring about the community to make sure the community is alive and well. Ben, what does the Bible teach about tithing, especially for Christians today? Right. Well, first of all, I I would say that Christians are not under the Old Covenant. They need to learn from the Old Testament. It's certainly the Word of God, but they're not under the Mosaic Covenant, Abrahamic Covenant, the Noahic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant. They're not under any of the Old Covenants. So that the specific rules for covenant people for those covenants do not directly apply to Christians unless they are reiterated in the New Testament. Okay, if they are reinscribed or reiterated as part of the New Covenant, that's different. So, for example, Jesus does indeed say, honor thy father and mother, which is in the Ten Commandments. He reiterates that as part of the teaching and commandments for the Christian. The Christian is supposed to live by things like the Sermon on the Mount. 
and the teachings of Paul and teachings of James and etc. We're under the new covenant and the new covenant has different strictures and different rules. In some ways it's more demanding than the old covenant. In some ways it's less demanding than the old covenant. In regard to rules of clean and unclean, we don't have those rules in the new covenant, for example, like you would in Leviticus. When it comes to money, no question in the Old Testament, there are plenty of texts that say that God's Israelite people should tithe. All God's children should tithe, says the Old Testament, <laughs> right? That's really clear. But when you get to the New Testament, tithing is not commanded. Now, there is a text where Jesus is having yes. a discussion with the Pharisees about them tithing their condiments, their ketchup and their mustard and whatnot, dill, mint, and cumin, right? They, they believed in tithing at all, right? They believed tithing everything, even your condiments, even your salt and pepper, right? And Jesus says, that's fine for you Pharisees, but notice who he's talking to. He's not talking to his disciples. He's talking to the Pharisees who are living under the Mosaic Covenant. It's a Jewish conversation between Jews. It's not a conversation where the followers of Jesus are commanded to tithe. This is absolutely not true. Mm. What we do have in the New Testament is a higher standard of giving, sacrificial giving. The example is the widow. Mm -hmm. And the widow's might. This is not tithing. She gave every liquidatable asset she had. Both coins that she had, she threw in the temple treasury. Jesus says to the disciples, go and follow her. Mm. Self-sacrificial giving. And when the disciples discuss this kind of thing with Jesus, they say, well, you know, we gave up houses and lands and our fishing industry and mm -hmm. wives mm -hmm. and brothers and sisters to come and follow you. Jesus says, don't worry, be happy. In the kingdom, we will get far more back when the kingdom comes. You know, uh, the meek shall inherit the earth, in essence, says Jesus. That's later. That's not now, right? One of my favorite cartoons from the far side shows a very meek, mild-mannered Casper Milktoast kind of guy sitting across the desk from his CPA. And the caption says, the day after the meek inherited the earth, and the CPA is saying to this man, sir, what you have here is a very large capital gains problem. <laughs> right. The New Testament calls us to sacrificial giving. And what that means will vary from family to family and individual to individual. It, it means that you have to pray and think in faith, what would be a sacrifice for me to give? And I think that's a good thing. Just giving somebody a percentage doesn't do that. I mean, I've known plenty of wealthy people for whom giving 10% is just a tax write-off. There's no pinch there at all. There's no sacrifice. Right. It's, it's zero sacrifice. That's not sacrificial giving at all. On the other hand, I know families, indigent families, that if they gave 10% of what little they had, we would have to all go and bail them out. Mm. That's not what mm. Jesus had in mind either right? Mm -hmm. Sacrificial giving looks different for different people. So you would say there isn't a magic formula No, that if you give 10% and you read the last chapter of Malachi, you're going to be financially well and you're not going to have any problems then. No. And again, as I said, the promises of God are given within the context of relationship and God's not going to give you anything that he knows will hurt your relationship with him. He's just not going to do it. The promises are conditional on ever so many factors about that living relationship 
that we have with God. And we need to understand that that's the case. There are no ironclad guarantees like that about money in the Bible. Ben, would you mind leading us in prayer right now? Lord God, the first thing I would say that we all need to do is simply admit that we've all sinned and fallen short of your glory. And that applies, especially in America, to what we've done with our financial resources. We ask that your spirit would bring a spirit of recognition, conviction, understanding, and sober, sober realization that we have been really bad witnesses to the gospel when it comes to what we have done with our resources. Mm. And the world is watching. The world has noticed. The world understands that we are narcissists, we're self-centered people, and not thinking first of the priorities of world evangelism and mission and self-sacrificial living. Jesus told us, leave that stuff behind, take up your cross and follow me. No, we want a gospel of self-indulgence, Lord, not a gospel of self-sacrifice. Forgive us. Yes. We ask it in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining me on today's episode of Great Stories with Charles Morris. I also want to again thank Dr. Ben Witherington for sharing so many biblical insights on Jesus and money. And if you want to hear more conversations like this, why don't you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts? And if you enjoyed this episode, help us get the word out. Leave us a five-star review. You can also go to haventoday.org and sign up for our weekly email and discover additional episodes posted on the blog. And as always, thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining me once again on Great Stories with Charles Morris.